We're going to dive in once again to the book of Habakkuk. This is the second part of a three-part series in the book of Habakkuk, the very well-known Habakkuk. So we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to start there this morning. We're going to work our way through to the end of chapter 2. A reminder to those of you who are here from last week and uh, new information for those who uh, have not been here, were not part of last week's sermon. Habakkuk is a prophet. He is a, considered a minor prophet. Let me rewind. If you guys are having trouble finding it, go to the book of Matthew. It's five books to the left or use your table of contents, but that's probably the easiest way to do it between Nahum and Zephaniah. Uh, Habakkuk is a prophet to the south. So under Solomon, the, uh, the nation of Israel was split up into 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. Two southern tribes were Judah and Benjamin. The northern tribes were the other 10. They are in Samaria. And at that point, uh, Assyria had overtaken the northern tribes. And so we're here placed in early 600 BCs, which means that 100 years before this, time of Habakkuk, the north had been taken by Assyria, plundered, and no, no longer in existence. And so Habakkuk and Judah and the people of Judah are here looking at that and saying, is that going to happen to us? Because it really seems like it's going to happen to us. They haven't learned to continue in God's ways and to listen to God's instruction to live in obedience to his Torah. And so the same fate is coming their way. And Habakkuk, as a prophet, as he should, is the voice of God to the people saying, turn, turn back. But right now, what he's doing is he's crying out to God and asking God, enact justice. Please, you cannot let this happen. Wicked is running about the land and you have to put a stop to it. The wicked are oppressing, taking advantage of, and even killing the righteous. We got to stop this. And God responds with, last week, beginning part of this book, God responds with, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Chaldeans which are the Babylonians. I am raising up the worst kind of people to use them to bring judgment upon Judah. And so our text this morning places us right in the middle of that. So Habakkuk just heard something he did not want to hear. God is going to do something completely different than he expected. Habakkuk does not like this. And so we're going to hear Habakkuk's response to God's response. So it's his second complaint this morning. That's what we're going to read right now. We're going to read verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1. Okay, we're going to read that right now. We'll go through it. And then the rest of the sermon, we're actually going to go piece by piece through God's response. So Habakkuk's complaint, read with me, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are pure are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let's pray this morning and ask for God's help. Oh God, we need your help. We need your help to understand when things are confusing, when what we're experiencing is not matching up with what we know about you. And Lord, even when we can sit and say, okay, I believe. I know you're good. I know you're going to work good. 
but you're not doing it fast enough. Evil still is surrounding me. My afflictions are still present. I am still suffering. I'm still in confusion. I just don't know. This morning, I ask that you help us see through your word that you asked Habakkuk to write down in a vision, to write it down on tablets so that we may see. Well, we're here this morning, Lord. We see. Help us to to see with our hearts this morning your truth and the fact that you are good and that you're going to keep your promises and that we can rest in that. But we need your help. So would you be with us? Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, in our book, Hind's Feet in High Places, which is our book of the month, which corresponds to the book of Habakkuk, written from the book of Habakkuk, where we're lining up in that book when it comes to Habakkuk is when the main character, Much Afraid, is climbing this mountain, and her faith is maturing because God is going to make her faith like the deer's feet so she can, she can climb to high places and she can see and understand. He is maturing her faith. And so she sets off with her companion's sorrow and suffering, and she meets the shepherd here and there along the way. But then she gets to this point where she's part, part way up the mountain and she's been trudging along and she's had some affliction and sorrow and suffering and she sees the summit and she looks at it and she gets excited and she's ready and she thinks she's, she's there. She thinks she's ready for it. Can I just be there? But little does she know she has to continue to go down another valley and through more tough terrain. And she has to continue on and on around the mountain before she's actually ready to reach the summit. And if any of you have actually climbed a mountain before, uh, you kind of know this to be true. We, Kaylee and I climbed uh, Mount Whitney years ago before kids. And <laughs> we, we set off on this journey. And after about an hour, uh, you know, the sun started to rise and we could look up and we could actually see the summit. And we're an hour into this, this climb. And we see the summit, and I'm like, I'm feeling fresh because we're an hour in. I see it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there it is. That's not that bad. 14,000 feet, this seems pretty easy. Five, six hours later, going through, come around another turn, get another glimpse of the summit. And I'm like, have we gone backwards? Are we going the right direction? The summit was not getting any closer. The trip was long, and it was hard to wait. And the weight was feeling heavier and heavier as, as we climbed this mountain. And that's the story that we're seeing unfold here with Habakkuk. Okay, God, I believe it. I believe you're good. I believe you're just, and you're going to work justice, but do it now, please. Do it now. I can't wait. I, I can't just see the summit and, and just wait. This, is, this has been long enough. How long must I continue to wait? And that's where we're at this morning. And if we're being honest, this day and age, with the advancements in technology and what have you, it is not easy to wait. With the invention of the microwave that cooks and heats your food 10 to 20 times faster. The inventions of cars and planes, where, whereas the fastest anyone ever went for the longest time was on a horse. Most people walked, some in wagons. We could drive in a car to San Diego and get there in an hour and a half. It would take the average family a week to walk there. They moved at a much slower pace. Communication. I mean, we have phones. You have instant text message, calls, videos from people across the world. Whereas most of history was letters that had to be written would take weeks, even months, just to correspond. If it would even happen. The Instapot, Instagram. Everything that seems to be going in the world of instant, now. This just makes waiting all the more difficult because we're used to getting what we want very quickly. And especially waiting in the big life things. Ask yourself this morning, what are you waiting for? What have you been praying for that has not come about yet? Maybe... It's a spouse because you've been single long enough. You just 
are struggling waiting any longer for God to bring that perfect husband or wife along for you. Or it could be a specific job or even a promotion that you've been working and working and working for for quite some time. could be a health issue. It could be a big life-changing diagnosis or it could just be a nagging affliction like a thorn in the flesh that continues to distract you. It could be relational trouble. Where the other person still just doesn't get it. Still just doesn't fully understand what you're trying to say. And the arguments just continue to come more frequently, getting worse, less and less understanding, more and more friction. And you just have to wait. And it's really difficult to continue to wait on God to resolve this conflict, whatever it may be. And in all of this, you can say with Habakkuk that God is just, God is good, but I just can't continue at this pace anymore. And God responds with, wait, by faith. I'm working for your good. It may not look like you anticipated, but good will come. It will certainly come. Because faith grabs hold of God's future promises to experience them now. Let me say that again. Faith grabs hold of God's future promises to experience them now. One day there will be a perfect shalom, an eternal peace, a place of final rest for eternity. And with faith, now we can experience that. We can experience the moments of shalom, of peace. Because we're certain that that day will come. It's not a game that we don't know the outcome to. We can grab hold of God's future promises by faith. And this morning we're going to see Habakkuk try and do that. Eventually he will. But this morning we're going to see that tension of him trying to really understand that. I know the end. But how can I experience that now? How can I experience your peace by waiting and trusting now? So this morning we have two unoriginal points again. Habakkuk's complaint followed by God's response. So verses 12 through 2-1, which we read earlier, comprise of Habakkuk's complaint. And as we read, we saw that he's troubled by this answer. This is not an easy answer. This is not the answer he wants. But he does start with a solid foundation of who God is before he launches into his complaint. Read with me again, verse 12. Read verse 12. He says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He says, Lord, Yahweh. Okay, that's God's covenant name. He says, my God, my Holy One. This is the covenant God who is keeping his promises to his covenant people. Habakkuk knows that and he's standing in this place and he's saying, you're from everlasting. You eternally called Israel. You elected them before time to be your people. How in the world could they go to annihilation now? That's what he's invoking. That's what he's reminding is, is God, these are your people from everlasting. You cannot forsake them. You will not forsake them. You are my rock. You are our rock, a solid foundation, faithful, not easily moved. You will certainly bring justice. Question for us this morning is where do you start when you begin to complain to God, when you begin to beg God and plea with him? Are you placing your feet on the solid ground of God's character or on the sinking sand of your own imagination? Your own understanding of what God is like or what God ought to do or to have done. 
Reminding yourself of these things is vital to our questions and our complaints of who God is. God is omniscient. Let this be a reminder. God is omniscient. This means he is not surprised by what you're going through. He knows all of it. He is all-powerful, which means not only does he know, he is able. He is capable of bringing about good. He is faithful. He has never made a promise that he has not kept, and he does not intend to. And he's loving. He's loving. He acts for your good. Those are reminders that we can take when we go to God in honest complaint. And if we start with these, our complaints might not bring so much anxiety, so much worry, and so much doubt in our situation. Those things actually might begin to dissipate. Habakkuk's about to launch into his complaint, but that's, that's where he starts. That's where he starts. Read, read with me verses 13 and 14. And no, this is where he's starting from. This is the point that he starts with, the foundation. Verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea like crawling things that have no ruler. He begins with God's purity. God's purity. God, who had taught Israel his purity and how pure he is in the tabernacle, only pure gold could be used. On the garments of the priests, only pure garments, not mixed material. And if a person had touched a dead body or any sort of sickness that might spread, they were put outside the camp for a time. God was pure, and he was teaching his people that he was pure. Habakkuk knows this, and so he says, God, how, how can the perfectly pure partner with the impure, the Chaldeans? How can you do this? How can you have anything to do with them? That's his struggle. He doesn't get it. God has taught them his purity, and now he uses the most wicked of nations to bring about his justice. This is not making any sense to him. So he continues. You make mankind like the fish. God does this. This is possibly his boldest claim yet. He says, God, you make the righteous like the fish. This is your doing. And these are the types of people you have ruling over the righteous. These are wicked people. Explained in verses 15 and 16, we read before in a quick summary. They grab the righteous by the hook and they rejoice. Then they worship their fishing nets, their drag nets, because that's what keeps them powerful and rich. They want nothing to do with you, God. And yet this is who you're using. Once again, this is not making sense. Then he says in verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Will this continue or will you put an end to it? Are you going to stop this? And then he takes his stand. After he he sets his feet on solid ground. He launches his honest complaint to God. He takes his stand. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, which you, God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The watch post. The watch post was a place where someone would go up, climb very high, and basically get a, a better perspective of what's going on. They would get a better view of what's happening. To warn, to bring good news, to help, whatever it was, they would go up the watchtower and they would gain a different perspective of the world around them. So that's what Habakkuk is doing here. And he says, look to see what he will say to me. What he does is he goes up the watchtower 
and he looks and he sees what God will say to him. He is looking for God's revelation. Listen to what Palmer Robertson, a commentator who I used before and will use again in this series. Listen to what he says about this. He says, talking about Habakkuk, he won't attempt to reconcile in his own mind the apparent contradiction of God's election of Israel and their annihilation. He instead resorts to divine wisdom, awaiting God's answer. Revelation from God can be his only answer. And then he finishes. Habakkuk's humility and hope provide direction for the church through ages. That's the picture that we see. Is that he launches his complaints from a place of knowing God, yet in full honesty. God, I don't understand, and you're not working fast enough. And then he stands, and he waits for God to supply the wisdom. Where do you go when you're confused and you have no clue what God is doing? What source are you relying upon when this happens? Ask yourself that question. Is it your current experience? Is it your present circumstances that's dictating how God is acting towards you? If it's going bad, therefore God must be acting against me. Is it your own imagination? You're saying, this is, this is, this is the God I think that he, he should be. This is how I think God should act. And therefore, you're just going to be devastated over and over again because that is actually not the God who has revealed himself to us through Scripture. Or do you go to hopelessness and apathy? This isn't going to change. This is just going to remain the same. Why bother? Why care? Let me just walk away in hopelessness, apathy, not bringing my complaint to God. Just holding my hand up against him and walking away saying, this is just how it is. Or, or, do you go to him in prayer, saying with Habakkuk, I don't know, but I'll wait. And I'll look and listen for your wisdom. I don't know what's going to happen. It doesn't make sense. But I'll wait. And I'll look for your wisdom. And do you go to Scripture to see God's wisdom, to see God's character, to see God's actions? In a moment, God tells Habakkuk to write this down. Write this vision down on tablets. Well, those tablets got transferred to parchment. That parchment got transferred to paper and printed. And it's here in front of us, our Bibles, so that we can see what God has done. Because indeed, he has done these things. So from that moment, we are recipients of God's promises. And he kept them. And we get to see it. And we get to run with it. John Calvin says, short quote, but impactful, the only unfailing security for the faithful is to acquiesce in God's word. I'm not sure I understand. He's saying, I'm not sure I understand, but you've said it. You've said it. I'm going to believe I'm going to trust you. Still don't understand, but I'm going to trust you. And now he gets ready for God's response. He's launched his challenge, and now he stands and waits. And this is God's response. This is point number two God's response. Which, by the way, is, is very gentle. If you guys read the book of Job, this is, this is a gentle response. This is a nice response. This is him sympathizing with Habakkuk saying, it's okay. I get it. I get your complaint. 
Read with me verses 2 and 3. So chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. This is God's response to Habakkuk's second complaint. He says, And the Lord answered me. Here it is. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. That's us. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Seems slow. God's response. Write the vision so that, so that he may run with it. Messengers ran with news. Good news. Bad news. Warnings. They ran with these things to people to show them, to tell them about God's message. And he says, write this so that generations to come can read it and see it and tell of how it came to pass. And that's exactly what we see. And he says, Await. it awaits its appointed time. It awaits its appointed time. Robertson, again, talking of, of Abraham and Sarah, waiting. Robertson, the commentator, says, wait, okay? Not according to man's anxiously conceived timetable, but according to the unshakable divine decree, the promise would come to pass. That's what Abraham and Sarah had waited. That's how they had waited. Not according to the anxious timetable, but the unshakable divine decree. Tells us to wait for it. If it seems slow, wait for it. Habakkuk, at this point, as mentioned earlier, only knows of Assyria only knows of the powerhouse of Assyria that is completely demolished and wiped off the face of the earth, the northern kingdom. And now God tells him another, another group just like them is coming. Are they going to do the same thing? He doesn't know how long Babylon's going to be in charge. It was Assyria, then Babylon, and we know from history it's going to be the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And they all get their time in the light. They all get their 15 minutes. Sometimes it lasts centuries. They all get that empire. And they come up, and then God brings them down. They come up, and God brings them down. So Habakkuk hears the news of Babylonians, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know how long they're going to be. All he knows is what has happened with Assyria and the northern tribes. So he, so God is telling him to take the long view. Take the long view, Habakkuk. Because waiting requires actual patience, if it seems slow. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years from the moment God promised them a child who all the nations would be blessed through. 25 years they had to wait. And in between time, they had a child that wasn't the promised child. They had to wait another 13 years. 25 years they waited for that. Moses. Moses, after he left Egypt, 40 years in the land of his father-in-law, herding sheep. 40 years before God called them back to lead the people of Israel. Israel itself, 40 years in the wilderness, walking along, waiting for the promised land, waiting on God's promise. And before that, 400 years they were in slavery, waiting on the promise for God to free them. These are actual people. And it's easy to just push this off. Be like, ah, oh, it was back then. They, they actually waited this long for these things to happen. Because this is how God operates. Sometimes quick, yes. But oftentimes, very slow. There's a reason for it. There's a good reason for it. He's working in us. He's working in you. The second thing that waiting requires besides patient is perspective. Perspective. The watchtower. The watchtower gave perspective to those looking out. And like Paul, the Apostle Paul says that affliction is light and momentary in comparison 
to the weight of glory that's going to come. That's perspective. Our affliction, our suffering, is, it's hard. Okay? He's not saying it's not hard. Paul had a hard life. It is hard. It is difficult. Be honest with it. But, perspective, it is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. That's perspective. So when we wait, we wait patiently and we wait perspective. And waiting, oh, waiting is a discipline and it's where strength is, it's where faith is strengthened. It's, time, it's the time and it's the moments when God says, trust me. Trust in me. This is why David writes in Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. One of my favorite psalms that I've come back to time and time again. Commit your way to him, he will act. Be still before him. Wait patiently on him. That's what we do. Waiting is not easy. We, uh, we have some friends that, that five years ago, they lost their son in a, in a drunk driving accident. And a woman had, uh, who was intoxicated ran a red light and crashed into his car, and he died on impact. And sad story all around, but she actually uh, declared innocence on this and pleaded not guilty. And so the, the trial continued, and the verdict wasn't in, and the trial continued. And five years later, just a month ago, a month ago, she finally pleaded guilty. Justice was served, and the parents just felt this huge sigh of relief. The, the, the mom had texted my wife and just saying, thank God. Like, they, were, they, are, they are strong believers, and God was working in them through this. No doubt, he was working in them. But the moment when they felt that relief, where justice had been served, they'd been longing for. That, that's the moment when, when one day, the future, when justice is finally served, that's the one we long for. Sometimes it comes now. It's not always guaranteed. But in those five years, God worked in their hearts. He strengthened their faith. Not knowing the outcome. Not knowing if this person was going to get off and justice wasn't going to be served in the moment. But they waited. And they trusted. Like I mentioned, does it guarantee the outcome is going to happen the way that you want it to because you're waiting? No. No, this isn't how Habakkuk wanted it to happen. Not at all. He would have never chosen the Babylonians to do this. But, but we trust that, that good will come of it. Might not be how you want it. Might not be even in this life. But we trust that good will come of it knowing that one day ultimate good will come of it. If it's a promise of God, it will certainly come. Habakkuk is promised judgment of the wicked, but he doesn't know even if he'll see it. And in fact, we know he didn't. He didn't see this. God even knows that Habakkuk's not going to see this happen. And yet he still tells him to do what? To wait. Wait on. Trust in me. I'm going to do it. For Habakkuk and Judah, the Babylonians, they will actually get what's coming to them. Justice will actually be served. It may be in a long time, but justice will actually be served. And whether your affliction has resolution in this life or not, or in the way that you want, waiting and abiding, is where God's work in you happens. It's where your spiritual maturity is increased. It's where your faith is humbled and brought into dependence upon God. That's the kind of faith that lasts. 
that's the kind of faith that can trust and wait. And as that happens, as that happens, we begin to experience the shalom, the peace of God, and we relate to our afflictions and our confusions a little bit differently at that point. The peace of God really begins to settle in. God is saying, wait, be still. Cease your frantic worries and timetables and trust in the work that I am doing, in the time that I am doing. That's the mountain that, that much afraid is climbing. And the summit, the summit is not afflictionless, but it's where there's a mature faith that can wait and trust. We're not just waiting for that point in this life where we're going to get and there's going to be no more problems. That's not it. But it's our faith that gets matured. It's our faith that perseveres. It's our faith that's being worked on in those moments of waiting when you're in your doubt and confusion, perplexity. When God's doing his work on you. Mature faith that can wait, trust it. Let's continue. Continue back in verse 4. Verse 4 here, as we're about to read, is, is a contrast between the proud and the righteous. The proud and the righteous. Let's read verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The rest of the chapter here is a description of the proud and their warning in five woes, which are warnings of judgment. So what we're going to do here is because, because God's setting up this contrast, we're going we're gonna to take verse 5, we're going to read 5 through the end, and we're going to come back to 4. So we're going to read about the proud and the arrogant. We're going to read the descriptions there, and then we'll come back. So read with me verses 5 through 8. This is the first of the warnings, the first of the woes. God says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own? For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those who awake, who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This is a warning to the greedy. This is a warning to the greedy that this is the sort of you reap what you sow principle. Their greed has a snowball effect, and it continues, and it continues to gain momentum, and they get in a point where they think nothing can stop them. They take what they want, and then they pile on debt, and they pile on pledges, thinking they can do whatever they want without any sort of repercussions. But soon, God says, soon all that comes back around to you. All that will come back around. People will call their debts. The remnants that you left in those cities, they're going to come back. They haven't forgotten. You cannot do exactly what you want. That's the first woe to the, to the greedy. That's a characteristic of the, the proud and the arrogant. The second one, verses 9 through 11. This, this is going to be a warning to those who keep all to themselves. Verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. 
by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Those who have set their nest on high, cutting off many peoples. These are the people who live in luxury, who live completely separate from the needy and the broken. These are the people who have it all and yet share none of it. They have big houses away from everyone else and they show no hospitality. They show no welcoming the same way that God welcomes all in Christ. These are those people who live in luxury, enjoy the rich food, enjoy their, their wealthy lifestyles, and share none of it with anyone else. The third woe comes in verses 12 through 14. This is going to be a warning to those who use their power for evil. Let's continue on. Verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Those who don't care who they harm when they seek to build a name for themselves. They don't care who's in their way. They don't care about the person asking for help. They want nothing to do with them. But God says, it's not going to stay like that for a long time. It's not going to stay like that forever. He says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. For the wicked, it's not going to last. They're like chaff. They're going to perish. They're going to move on. But the righteous, the righteous are going to live. The righteous will continue on. Let's continue with the fourth woe here in verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man, the violence to the earth, the cities, and all who dwell in them. They pour out their wrath. They pour out their anger. anger. They take advantage of their neighbors. They make them do whatever they want. The more the people in weaker positions are scoffing and ridicule. And to really just prop themselves up. To bring shame on others. And then God says, The cup in the Lord's hand is coming to you. The cup in the Lord's hand is the wrath of God. The wrath of God that comes to all who do not trust in him, who do not believe in him. To all sinners, unless they turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Christ, This is what awaits. Sadly, this is the final outcome. The wrath of God endured forever. But there's hope. There's hope in Christ. This morning, if that's you, put your trust in Christ and let the wrath that was headed for you be diverted to him. And then walk in obedience and trust in him who is good and works on your behalf. That that same wrath for those who believe, that same wrath that was heading for us has now been absorbed and taken by the Son. So that you and I can look to him and we can believe and trust in him that he will 
work for our good in whatever situation we're in because guess what? He took the ultimate wrath. He took the ultimate problem upon his shoulders. That wrath, God's wrath, the one that you do not want to be under, that wrath is coming the arrogance way, the proud way. Those who are puffed up and do not repent of their sins and submit to the Lord. The last woe, the last warning we see, verses 18 18 through 20. This This is a warning to idolaters. Verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is a warning to anyone who's going to put anything or anyone else in the place of God. And in this case, it was a a wooden statue that they created with their own hands. But, But really, it's for us coveting. It's anything that we put our trust in instead of putting our trust in God alone. Those who worship their own might, those who worship their own money, their job security, their own wisdom. But the Lord is a living God. The Lord is a living God, and he's in his temple. He is ruling from his throne for our good. And he says, let all keep silent before me. Let all keep silent before me. We just got a picture of the arrogant and the proud. The types of people that are representative and within the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. And if we were Habakkuk and Judah, and these were the people that God was using, this was happening, we would also want immediate action to be taken. We couldn't stand by and just let these people roll over the righteous and the innocent. This is God saying to Habakkuk and to Judah, write this down because it's going to happen. This is going to happen. These people, they're going to receive justice. And it's not going to be good. It's going to be my wrath poured out on them. And these all seem like extreme versions of pride. I mean, I don't think there's anyone in here building a town with blood or founding a city with iniquity. But it's easy for us to just push this aside and say this is extreme. This is the extreme. This doesn't really relate to me. But ask yourself, where in your life is pride smothering faith? Where is pride smothering your faith in God? Greed. Keeping your distance from the needy and not wanting to get involved. Using your power for your own purposes. Taking advantage of someone who's not as smart or not a, as high of a position. Or placing your trust in anything else besides God alone. That's how the proud lives. That's how the proud lives in our heart festers up in these moments of pride and arrogance that do this kind of thing. That's how the proud lives, but the righteous lives by faith. This is where we come back to. This is where we're going to end. The righteous live by faith. Verse 4. Verse 4, second half. Read with me again. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now this faith, this faith is in a person. This faith is in an object. It is in God. 
it's not abstract, it's not ethereal, it's not just general faith out into the universe. This is faith in a person, God himself. Let me give you a quick illustration of what faith is and what it looks like. If I was coming up to a, if I was driving along the road and there was a big gap and I'm driving my car, I need a, a bridge to fill that gap. The question is, who am I going to ask to build that bridge? I can ask someone who's working for my good. I can ask my wife to do that. She doesn't have a clue about how to build a bridge. But guess what? She can try, and she's doing it intentionally for my good. But I'm not going to cross that with confidence. Or I can go to someone who is incredibly competent, an amazing engineer who builds bridges for a living, but has something against me. He is my enemy, and he does not care to work for, for my good. Am I going to be able to cross that bridge with faith and confidence? No. But then we have the third group. We have the person who does know what they're doing, has been doing it, and is also a very dear friend of mine. Then, and only then, can I cross this bridge in confidence, knowing that they can do it and that they are doing it for my good because they have done it and they have been working for my good. That's what faith is. Faith in God, the person who does work for your good and can actually accomplish that good. That's what that faith is. The righteous living by that kind of faith. Paul picks up on this faith in Romans 1.17. This is the foundation of his thesis statement, which is for the whole book of Romans, which says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From faith to faith. Then he ends it with saying, it is written. This is Romans 1.17. It is written. And he's talking about here in Habakkuk. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel begins and ends with faith. And the believer is sustained by faith. Faith as a gift from God and secured by the Spirit. This is how we can live by faith. This is how the righteous can even live by faith. Because it's a gift of God. And it's an act of God. It's an act of God in Christ. And I want us to see here as we end and we understand the righteous living by faith, I want us to see two aspects of this faith. One is continual faith. and One is a one-time faith of declaration. First is continual faith. A life lived by faith. A life lived by faith trusts in Christ and his work. His once and final work, yes but also his continual mediatorial work. That Christ right now is our mediator, sitting at the right hand of God, working for your good. Every single day. The spirit of Christ dwells in you to strengthen your faith. And Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you, you can't continue on in this faith. Abide in me. A lifetime of exercising faith. That's why Paul says to the Galatians, he says, foolish Galatians, are you so foolish to having begun your life by the Spirit, you're going to now perfect it by the flesh? You're going to agree that it was by the Spirit that you were born again and brought into the family of God. But now you're going to live your life by your own wisdom and your own power and your own strength. The Spirit, the Spirit helps us walk the path that leads to life. Continual faith that says, even when I can't see what you're doing and I'm and I'm really struggling waiting for it. I cannot wait any longer. I will trust 
and abide in your goodness. That's what continual faith says. Then the other aspect is the future hope. The righteous shall live. The righteous shall live. Contrast to the wicked. The wicked's end is their death. The righteous shall live eternally. Those who are counted righteous will live eternal because the righteous one lives eternal. That's how we can know it. The cup in the Lord's right hand, which we read in verse 16, will not ever come around to us. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That wrath was averted once for all on the cross as Jesus took what we deserved. That wrath, the cup, was poured out on him instead so that we can live free, that we can live in his grace and his mercy, that we can play the long game, that we can look to our future hope of the final resurrection because it is certain. It is certain. Though it seems slow, it is certain. It will come to pass. And it's certain because Christ is the first fruits of that resurrection. The resurrection that we are waiting on, that we are waiting to come, the final day, the resurrection when, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the corruptible puts on the incorruptible. That day, that resurrection to eternal life. As we wait for that day, we know it's certain because Jesus was the first fruits of that resurrection. He was glorified. He was given a glorified body. And so we can look at that and we can say, we will too. We will also have a glorified body with no more affliction, pain, suffering, sorrow. We can look to that day with certainty. We can long for, we can wait for, and we can groan with all creation until that day when all is made right. But we wait. We wait with hope of a certain future because the cross is a reality. The cross is an event in history that secured our fate. That it was finished on that day. Because of that, the righteous will live by faith. A faith that grabs hold of God's future promises to experience them now. In an age of instant everything, we can indeed wait. We can wait and be still before the Lord because he is working for good. And his work is certain. And if you doubt, look back at the cross. You doubt, look at that moment in history where your fate was secured, where your future is certain. The cross was a moment in history that has eternal results. A certain future hope of perfect peace, of perfect shalom, of everlasting life with God. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so grateful that we can know that you work for our good. We can know that you have kept your promises. We can look at the testimony of Scripture and see that you have indeed kept all the promises that you have made and we have no reason to believe that you won't. But Lord, we struggle. We struggle in the wait. And even as we can know it and we can admit it, oh, we have, conf we have a lack of confidence in, in waiting for it. So help us to wait. Give us eyes to see and ears to understand your work and what you're doing in our lives. Knowing that apart from you, we can do none of this. Be with us this week, Lord, as we 
continue to to live our life and live in our weight and hope uh, for your your good work to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.